You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello and welcome listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. I'm excited to be joined today by two industry leaders, Chris Eng and Jay Jacobs, who are going to discuss what's driving the volume of code flaws, what factors influence fixed rates, how organizations with higher fixed rates are tackling the problem successfully, and what developers can do now to integrate security and improve workflows. Before we dive into today's topic, I'd like to ask Chris and Jay to take a moment to introduce themselves. Chris? Sure. Hi. Uh, My name is Chris Ng. I'm the Chief Research Officer at Veracode. I've been with Veracode for over 14 years now, and right now my responsibilities are to run our research team, uh, which includes applied research, the, the people that are kind of building the capabilities that go into our products, as well as product security, making sure that we secure the stuff that we build. Uh, I've been working on the State of Software Security Report since its inception uh, 11 years ago, and um, looking forward to the conversation. My name is Jay Jacobs, and I am the Chief Data Scientist and Co-Founder at Scientia Institute, where we do security research and publications, uh, partnering with vendors and other data sources to to understand what's going on in the, in the security world. Um, and we've been working with Veracode for a few years now, and it's really been a great experience being able to dig deeper every year. And so also looking forward to this conversation. Great. Chris and Jay, thanks so much for being here. Chris, I know that the State of Software Security Volume 11 revealed the majority of applications contain at least one security flaw, and fixing those flaws typically takes months. This year's analysis of 130,000 applications found that it takes about six months for teams to close half of the security flaws they find. So it feels very much like flawed applications are the norm. Can you talk to our listeners about what that means and how it applies to their overall development strategy? Sure. We have a huge data set, like you mentioned, 130,000 applications and that comprised uh, over a million scans and over 10 million flaws. And so that gives us the raw data to really understand a lot about what's happening out there with application development and security programs. And 76% of applications did have at least one security flaw, and most of them have you know, many more than that. Applications are getting bigger and bigger. They're very complicated. They pull in you know, frameworks and libraries and, and all sorts of code to get things done. So it's not surprising that they tend to have security flaws. It's impossible to write perfect code. The good news, I guess the flip side of that, is that there's a relatively low percentage of high and critical severity flaws. So when I break it down and only look at those criticality of flaws, only 24% of applications had things of that severity, one or more higher critical severity flaws. So that's a good sign that tells us that even though applications do tend to be riddled with lots of flaws, we are focusing on at least reducing the ones that have the biggest impact uh, or that have you know, the most serious risk to the application. Now, you mentioned the six months to finish closing uh, half of the security flaws that a given application will detect. 
And we like to talk about that in terms of, we use the term half-life for that. How long does it take any team or application to fix half of the flaws they know about? And so I'll use that terminology. We'll, We'll both use that terminology probably throughout this conversation. There are things that developers can do to improve their half-life, essentially reducing the amount of time it takes to get to that point. Uh, One of them is frequent scanning. Uh, Just by scanning your application more frequently and and therefore seeing flaws sooner in the development cycle, that can actually reduce that half-life by more than three weeks. And we'll get into some of the other factors that the developers can do uh, later on. And I want to I want to tag on the size that we're dealing with here. You know, you mentioned the 130,000 applications. You can imagine that there's a lot of variety across these applications. So even though we talk about this half-life being six months, it's a you know measure of centrality. It's the average, and so there are applications that greatly improve in that six months, where their half-life is measured in days. And of course, there are applications on the flip side where uh, maybe months might be too granular to to measure some of the remediation rates. Um, So there is a lot of variability. There's a lot of nuances to these applications, but there's a lot of them that we get a look at. So we get a really good view. The other thing I want to bring up is the open source aspect. So, you know, roughly it was about 70% of applications, they're inheriting at least one security flaw from open source libraries. And that's a huge problem because a lot of the developers were thinking, I'm going to handle my code, and the third-party stuff, you know, these libraries, they'll either fix themselves or someone will update them somewhere or something. So it's hard to, to really have that full picture view. Um, and also, we also found about 30% of the applications have more flaws in the open source than they do for the code that they're writing in-house. And so, again, it's that big picture, getting the whole picture when dealing with application security. Um, and it's also, there's a huge dependency on the, the language being used. And so, you know, the, like I think it was um, some of the uh, Microsoft Visual Code, that had a very low proportion of third-party libraries. Well, something like Java, I think it was 90% of the tip of application was third-party libraries and Java applications. And so that third-party aspect becomes really, really big deal to talk about, depending on the language. There were also um, some really common flaw types uh, as we look at some of the types of flaws we're seeing. The top five uh, were basically the information leakage, and that is essentially you know, information um, being divulged by the application that may not be intentional. And then we have CRLF injection, the um, you know, injecting the uh, carriage return, line feed type things, uh, making the parsing engine parse it wrong, cryptographic issues, which is a whole range of things around cryptography, And then code quality and, of course, credentials management also being uh, a large challenge uh, for these things. And those are the top five most common. And you've seen, like, uh, you know, as you've worked with us on this over the past few years, like, those tend to stay the same, right? Like, we always have, you know, the top ten categories tend to be, like, the same problems, same mistakes that people are making. They change, like, in rank order, but, you know, as a whole we're not really eliminating any of these classes of vulnerabilities. They're, they're popping up continually in different languages as, as those languages evolve, as we bring new developers you know, into the fold, and they make the same mistakes that people yeah. were making 10 years ago. And um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the same yeah. stuff you know, over and over. And it's important to remember that you know, a lot of that is because, again, sometimes you're, you're looking at applications that you've never even scanned before, right? Some companies are bringing stuff in that they've never scanned before. If you were to isolate right. 
a single app, right, that, that maybe had been worked on over the course of several years, you absolutely would see that getting better and better. But um, you know, yeah. sometimes you can look at this data, these categories, and say, like, why are they always still near the top? And it's because the overall population, uh, to some degree, is getting so much bigger, and we're seeing people repeat the same yeah. mistakes. So how do we get out of avoiding those mistakes, I guess, is, is one of the challenges for the future. Yeah, and, and that's, that's exactly my next question, Chris. <laughs> Right. I mean, it seems natural. So, okay, if these are the same mistakes that are happening for, you know, more than a decade, how can developers reduce these flaws and improve the efficacy of their DevSec ops? So one of the the good points to call out here is that about two-thirds of the applications, they're either maintaining or reducing the total amount of observed flaws. And that's between their their first scan and the last scan uh, in the data that we have. And in other words, like they aren't adding the security debt, and in many cases, they're actually reducing their security debt. So they're they're addressing and they're fixing the flaws a little faster than what they're appearing as new code and new features are being introduced. That's a key thing to keep track of, Julie, because like every application that's out there that's actively being used is is adding new features. And so if you're introducing new security flaws at a faster rate than you're introducing new features and you're essentially accumulating security debt over time, that's not going to end well, right? That gap is going to keep growing and keep growing and, and you're going to be building up this mountain of debt that, that you'll never be able to get out from under unless you kind of change the way that you're dealing with it. So um, it was kind of a, a nice, I guess, positive uh, data point that those two-thirds were, were maintaining or reducing. So at least they're on path to get to a point where they could wipe out their security over some point in the future. There are actually a few different things that we found that actually improve the efficacy of that uh, security debt reduction even more and, and, and reducing that half-life by more. Essentially, you know, improving the team's capability to get after some of the things they find in a more effective and a, in a faster way. And this is, I think, one of the most surprising things that came out of this data set for me is when we looked at different applications and the metadata around them that we have, for example, the companies that they're from and the language and the frequency of scanning and the types of analysis being used against that application, we were actually able to determine that teams using a combination of scan types, so using multiple different technologies to scan their application, actually improve their fix rates. So, for example, if I'm using static analysis and dynamic analysis together on the same application, I actually reduce my half-life by 24 days. So even though I'm scanning with more tools, and probably that means I'm getting more findings than I would have if I scanned with one tool alone, that's improving my performance from a fixed perspective, which is extremely counterintuitive. But we saw the same thing happen with, with other testing methods as well. If you did um, static analysis alongside software composition analysis, which is the, the technology that tells you when you have flawed open source libraries that, that are bringing vulnerabilities into your code. If you did SAS and SCA alongside each other, you also improved your fix rate, your half-life, by about six days. And these things are additive. Um, so it was really interesting to isolate all these different factors that could contribute to or detract from half-life, closing more flaws, closing less flaws, closing the, the rate at which you're closing flaws. And when we look at all the different factors that we were able to isolate, 
there are some things that teams have control over, and then there are some things that they don't have control over. And we ended up getting to a point where we were thinking of them kind of like nature versus nurture. Um, on one hand, the nature side, you look at the factors that developers don't control. Like, how old is this application? How much security debt did it have when I started writing code for it? How big is the application? microservice type application. How big is my company? And that's kind of a proxy for what kind of development culture do we have sometimes, not always. But those are kind of things that the, that the developer just kind of falls into, but they don't really get to control. On the other side is the nurture side. And there are things that, that they do have direct control over, such as scanning frequency and scanning cadence. So how often do I scan and how regularly do I scan? And also, how much do I automate? When I run a scan, am I asking a person to go you know, upload that code somewhere or go press a button or run a tool? Or do I have this like really automated into my tooling where all the scanning is being done via API through automated tooling that I already have in place? And those are all things that were those nurture factors that, that developers did have control over that, that we saw have positive impact on, on Half-Life. So then what are some best practices for DevSecOps? It's interesting because for a while you would hear a lot of grumbling from security teams about DevOps and how just the nature of rapid development and that that kind of goes along with DevOps, more frequent releases and more automation. The grumbling was that, well, that's going to be counterproductive for security. As it turns out, DevOps and security, whether you call it DevSecOps or some other variation of that, they actually can work quite well together. And um, developers can do some of these nurture factors that I mentioned before to work their way to better security. So, for example, if they take their continuous integration tooling and they build security scanning in to that process in an automated way, so let's say they do it every time somebody has a merge request or every time somebody does a check-in, these are things that are not now going to be happening alongside the existing development work without anybody having to take you know additional action or having to remember to do something. Um, so, so these are all things that are completely in alignment with DevOps practices, right? Automate everything that you possibly can. Have those continuous feedback loops that tell you kind of early and often what mistakes you have or what things you can fix whether it's from a security perspective or a quality perspective or your failings, you know, your QA tests, whatever the case may be. And so by integrating and automating that scanning into those existing tools where the developers are already living, um, orgs can kind of guarantee that scans are happening frequently and on a regular timeline, that we're not waiting for people to remember to do this. Um, so, so that automation aspect of DevOps uh, plays really nicely, uh, helping us find stuff earlier and be less disruptive for developers. The worst thing is for a developer is, you know, they've coded up some feature, and then like two months later, a security team comes to them and and points out an issue that they made. In the meantime, they've moved on, you know, five or six other features, and then they have to go back and get back in the mindset of what that flawed feature was and remember how the code worked. It's just very disruptive. So if you can give them the feedback while they're in the moment, um, you're going to have a much better chance of, of, of getting those things fixed. Um, we also know that it's easier to find and fix issues in applications that have less coding baggage. So smaller applications, modern languages, modern frameworks, 
but a key thing that we took out of this was that even for like old, you know, crufty applications with a lot of security debt and and uh, not the best security culture in the organization, all these things that on the nature side that would make the half-life longer or slower, even if you're in that situation, these developer practices that I talked about, the automation, the frequency, the scan cadence, those can still result in better outcomes. Your starting point is not as good, but you can still shift that curve in the direction that you want to. And that's a good thing to keep in mind. Um, Regardless of where you're starting, your actions as a developer can have a positive impact on security. So that was a a big takeaway. Thanks for that, Chris. That that was very very thorough and detailed. Uh, Jay, I'm hoping you can talk to our listeners about why paying down security debt is so critical. Yeah, and this was one of the more critical things that came out of the the research that we did here. And so, but before we get into that, I think it's it's good to call out. And Chris was talking about the sort of nature versus nurture concept that we developed during the research. And with the higher flaw density, when we talk about flaw density, it's both nature and nurture because you may inherit an application that has a large amount of flaw density, a large amount of debt, and so that's something in the environment, it's the the nature that you're a part of. And yet, it's a choice moving forward whether you want to accumulate more or try to pay it down. And so you've got that action, that that thing that you can affect in your environment to have a good outcome. And so what we found, though, is that the largest impact out of everything that we looked at, the, the largest factor was this notion of flaw density. And then the we've got a chart in the, in the report that talks about this, but you know, it basically, when you have a higher flaw density, and this is basically out of all of the variation across flaw densities, this is one standard deviation above average. And so if you're one standard deviation above average, you're going to slow down your remediation time by about two months, 63 days. And so that's a huge factor when you're talking about you're already starting at six months. And if you're in a high flaw density application, that moves to about eight months. Um, and that goes to the other side. If you are way above average or below average, I guess, for flaw density, if you have a lot less flaw density, you could shave two months off of your half-life. Um, and so it's one of the more influential, the most influential uh, variable that we looked at in this model. Um, and so it's, it's just a really important thing to focus on. And then with that, very much a, a nature thing is this larger application, which was 57 days so if your application size is one standard deviation above average, typically what we see is, again, almost two months of slower half-life here in the remediation times. And so focusing on these things, um, you know, perhaps trying to look at maybe splitting up large behemoth applications into more microservices, maybe, you know, revamping some of the architecture. But that flaw density is such a critical component. And I think most developers sort of know that feeling when you're looking at a queue and you've got hundreds of things to address and then the next report comes in and it adds, you know, 20, you're thinking, ah, yeah, I mean, we got so many, you know, we'll just keep putting them off. And I think that's what happens. We see sort of that inertia of this flaw density and the, the security that sort of piling up and the, the desire and the drive to go fix new stuff and to drive it down is very hard to overcome that hurdle. And so one of the key points that we're getting at is, you know, start up front. If you have a new application, you're starting fresh, or if you just start scanning, focus on that security debt. Try to get that down. And again, there's other things that we talk about in here that can help that. As Chris was talking about the automation, you know, that continuous integration, trying to get that part of DevOps 
and trying to to make that part of the application, I think, is going to be a key component to helping pay down that security debt. The security debt is such a hard yeah. thing to overcome, too, when it's when it's big and it seems impossible, right? And and yeah. it really takes like a sustained effort. Like no one's going to say we'll, we'll drop everything else and focus on this for like the next you know month or two and and don't build any features, right? That's like that's rarely if ever going to happen. Right. And so you end up having to get buy-in from, you know, whether it's the, you know, the product team or the engineering team to, you know, to commit to chipping away at it, you know, at a, at a faster rate. If you're one of the apps that's growing your security debt, then you're like, well, how do we turn that into something that's chipping away that's at least reducing it over time? Or if you're already reducing, you say, how, how can I speed up that reduction so maybe I can close the stuff out in, in six months rather than a year? Um, but it's important for a security practitioner to, to realize that, you know, there are so many other competing priorities. And so if you can even get a commitment to a sustained certain amount of capacity going towards fixing security issues over each release cycle or each sprint or whatever the measurement is, that actually is a win. If you're reducing it and you stick with it and you have the buy-in, um, you will eventually get there. It just doesn't happen overnight, especially for some of these really old applications. It's, you know, there's a lot of history there, um, but it's, it's definitely not impossible. It feels very much like the myth of Sisyphus, though, right? Like, you, you push that boulder up the hill, you get up there, you're all excited, and then the darn thing rolls right back down. Um, but it's that process <laughs> that's really important. Yeah. It's what we learned from that myth, right? That it's not the agony right. of, oh, we have to push this, but that strength and endurance of continuing to push that boulder up that is where we find success. So I think you both raised some really good points in what can sometimes feel like, you know, a daunting and onerous task. So uh, lots of good education for our folks to take away. Jay, Chris, I want to thank you both again for joining us today. Before we do wrap up, um, do either of you have any parting words for our listeners? Yeah, there's one thing I wanted to point out. You know, I mentioned in the beginning that, you know, we talk about the six-month half-life, and I brought up how there's a lot of variation among applications. And so that six-month is sort of a average middle central tendency measurement, and, and we see applications way faster and some are slower, unfortunately. And we, we also talked about this nature versus nurture thing. So the nature and the nurture affect, you know, the different variables that we labeled that those those attributes of the application affect that half-life. And so, like, then the last thing that we talk about in our research, we, we talk about if you take an application that has both poor nature and poor nurture, poor attributes and actions, right? And if you just improve the actions, the things that the developers can address, that is adding more scanning, getting more involved in the security application aspects, integrating with your API, things that the developer can affect. What we see is when that is shifted, when that changes in the application, we see about a four-month reduction in the half-life. It's going from, I think, about nine months uh, or 10 months down to about six months down to that average. So just that good action, things that you have control over, is going to help reduce that half-life and help improve the remediation times. Yeah, I think my parting thoughts would, would be similar uh, to be even more succinct, scan early, Scan often and automate everything you can. That's a nice. great, like great summary there, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <You> like that? 
So thank you both again so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Listeners, thank you for joining in. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC. And be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. Also, subscribe to the RSAC podcast on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app and stay tuned for our next podcast. Interested in being a guest on our podcast? Visit rsaconference.com to learn about how to become a contributor. 